Lord, we need your help this morning. And Lord, as your messenger, I just ask that you would allow me to simply communicate your truth so that the people that are here, Lord, can grasp your gospel in a fresh light, Lord, that in these, these two accounts that we can see uh, how wonderful and beautiful you are and how amazing is this gospel that you not only preach uh, in the recorded gospel, but Lord, you also um, allow us to continue to preach and to come into a relationship with you through we thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of that gospel. And Lord, now we ask that you would feed us and strengthen us and to shape us, Lord, to be like your son, Jesus Christ, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but uh, there are times in the course of a year or of a couple of years where uh, things are so busy, things are so hectic that you just want to get away. Um, you just want to have a vacation, so to speak. You want to you break from the pressures of work, um, from you know, your boss kind of getting on your case because something needs to be done, or maybe there's things at home. You have projects after projects after projects. Um, if it's like uh, me, you, know, you, you, you get through one kind of project, whether it's you know, having, having a big family gathering party type thing or there's something going on and you're like, oh, just, it, we can relax after this. And then after this comes and you're already thinking about the next thing. And sometimes it's just great to, to get away and, and during that time um, just to rest and to reflect and to rejuvenate. And there's a sense in which um, this is where our text is going in the context of Jesus with his disciples. They have been ministering in the context of uh, the Jews, in particular the religious leaders. And what happens in this particular text is there's a move from the Jewish territories where this hypocrisy and hard-heartedness has been taking place. Um, and they're moving now into Gentile territory, in particular you'll see of Tyre and Sidon. And so, in our text today, we're going to see two encounters with two very different people in two different locations. But although they're different, there's something very, very similar to what's going on in both of those situations. One is a woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon, and she comes begging Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. The other is a man brought by others who are begging Jesus to take care of his deafness and his somewhat muteness. This man's friends, they're begging Jesus to lay his hands on him and heal him. So like I said, there's some, very, there's some differences here, but there's some similarities that are going on. In each encounter, there's a problem that brings them to Jesus. In each encounter, there is this interaction that they have with Jesus, and in each encounter, there is a resolve that can only come from Jesus. But in each case, we see something universal. What Jesus does, he does well, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And it would appear that the emphasis beginning here at verse 24, going all the way through 821, 
is Jesus' journey into Gentile territories, and that he's primarily dealing with Gentiles as he's interacting with people. So this is certainly true of the woman that comes to him in this particular passage. It's very, very likely true that this is uh, also the case with this, this deaf mute, and a little after that, the next section is the, the feeding of the 4,000, which also takes place in the region of Decapolis. These are all Gentile territories. And so it's important for us to recognize that, that Mark, in writing his gospel, is not just, just giving out kind of a general account of Jesus. He's writing an account for a particular group of people. And our best understanding is that he's doing that for the church in Rome, which is there are some Jews that are there, but primarily they're Gentiles. And as you read through Mark's gospel, you'll see that he makes specific effort to explain some Jewish traditions. We had that last week when he talked about the, the washing of the hands and this kind of stuff, because he wants them to understand this is how they practice things. This is what they do. So he's writing then to a context where Gentiles now would be alerted, ah, you're now no longer in, Gen in Jewish territory, now you're in Gentile territory. And now we begin to talk about things that we can relate to because maybe we're not Jews. So as we consider this text today, I've, I've made the proposition long purposely because I want to capture a number of things and kind of move us from one text to another. In this text, Mark reveals the ever-compassionate Jesus coming out of the context of hypocrisy and hard-heartedness that would be of the Jews and condescending to two different individuals in the Gentile territories. Now, that's kind of a, a long way to say what we have here is Jesus encountering two people and he brings healing. He demonstrates his power. But there's something, I think, very significant about the shift of location that we have in these texts. So let's just do a little bit of geography from the text. And if you can look up at the screen here, I want to show you a map. And this is actually pretty, pretty helpful because Jesus has been ministering around the Sea of Galilee. And in this text, we're told that he goes up to Tyre. Now, as you can see, that's a pretty long journey. And then from Tyre, if you want to jump down to verse 31, this is now the story of the, the deaf mute. From Tyre, he goes through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. He's just, just saying, all right, wait a second, you're going all this way up to go down to the Sea of Galilee and then to Decapolis, which then is east uh, or southeast of um, the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's like a horseshoe journey. And that actually is about 120 miles. I don't know about you, the last time you took a journey walking for 120 miles. Um, this, this is actually significant. So uh, you would expect that what we have here then is Jesus uh, doing ministry on this journey during these travels among the Gentiles. And what we have then before us, I think we can assume rightly is just a couple of the events and the encounters that he has with people along that journey in this Gentile territory. So let's jump in and let's consider this woman, this woman who is a desperate, desperate mother. And again, it should be no surprise that this story takes place just after Jesus' encounter 
with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who were attempting to gain favor with God by their rigid conformity to the law. But here we'll see that God's way is a way of grace and not the works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we all know it very well, but let me read it for us and may it kind of help us to begin to think about this text through the lens of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as we go through now the story of this woman, I want you to look for grace. I want you to, to be on the lookout for it. Now, this woman comes to Jesus. Notice verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon or cast the demon out of her daughter. Now this woman um, had a problem. What was her problem? Well, the problem was she had a daughter who had an unclean spirit. In other words, she had a daughter who was possessed by a demon. Now, you could imagine how distraught this mother would be. I mean, it's one thing to have a child who is sick, and you can call on the, the local doctor to come and maybe provide some medicine. You as a mom can, can be there to nurse that child. But when we're talking here about a child who has been possessed by a demon, you're really helpless. I mean, you really have no tools um, in your toolbox to, to deal with this. You're, you are totally uh, on your own without any help. You're powerless to do anything. But even the news of Jesus has reached these parts. Back in Mark chapter 6, we, we read the following. And whenever he came in villages and cities and countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I'm just giving you that kind of summary statement to say the news of Jesus was, was going all over the territory and was even spilling into the Gentile regions. And here we have this woman who heard about Jesus and when she hears about him, she, uh, and when she finds out that he's nearby, she comes in desperation, hoping that this healing rabbi can help. But there are obstacles in the way. And Mark is very, very careful to point out for us the obstacles that she has to overcome. And these obstacles will become a backdrop for the grace of God. So what are the obstacles? The first one is this. I call it a gender issue. She's a woman. Now, Mark specifically lays this out. Uh, immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Now, we have to remember that, that in those days, in the time of Christ, women were considered to be second-class citizens. They were often... Um, property of, uh, of, of a husband. Um, they were, uh, at times, trophies. Um, and certainly no respectable Jewish rabbi should associate with her, okay? So th there's this idea, there's this idea that, 
yeah, we'll get there. All right. Yeah. All right. So, so here's this, here's this woman. Okay. Here's this woman. And, and but the point is there, there is this, she's, a, she's a woman in that culture. Women were not necessarily considered to be, um, worth talking to. Remember Jesus with the woman at the well, even that, not just because of her behavior and her history, but just the fact that you're talking here publicly with another woman was considered to be um, a, an issue. Now, the, the beautiful thing, friends, that we have to understand, a lot of times we don't, we don't get this, is that with the coming of Christianity, with Christ and in Christ, women have been liberated from this place of being second-class citizens. Now, I realize there's some bad examples out there. There, are, there have been times in history or even churches that, that treat women inappropriately, and, and that is a shame to the church, but it is the church that has raised up women from these places of, of being looked down on and given them a place in the context of the church, being equal with everyone. There's no one here in this building today that is somehow less than someone else. We're, we're all one in Christ together, right? Uh, so Christianity has brought liberation for women. But the second obstacle is this. There's a racial issue. She is a Gentile, all right? Or your text might say a Greek. And Mark identifies her then as that, but he gives even more clarification. She is a Phoenician, a Syrophoenician. She's a Phoenician from Syria. You say, well, why is that significant? It's significant because the, the Phoenicians, the, 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 the um, Canaanites, you might want to say, which is how Matthew describes her, were this, this constant enemy of Israel through the years. So they were, they, were, they were close by, but they were pretty well hated. Listen to Josephus, the, the Jewish historian. He concluded that the inhabitants of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest enemy. I have a pastor friend in, in Lebanon, which is the same region where this is taking place. And his name is Edgar Trebulsi. He's a national pastor there in the city of Beirut. He's a godly man doing a great work. But I remember when I first started to interact with him, and I was you know, pretty young in my understanding of, of things back then, and um, I started to talk to him because you know, he speaks Arabic. And I said, so, so what are you? I said, are you, are you an Arab? And he looked at me horrified. He says, I am not an Arab. I'm a Phoenician. And I was like, wow, I've met a Phoenician. I mean, it's just kind of weird. I mean, how often do you meet Phoenicians, right? But this is, this is where they're from, in this region of Lebanon. He was proud of his heritage. But in the context of that day, she is a Gentile. And in particular, even more than that, she's a Syrophoenician. So there's a gender issue, there's a racial issue, there's also a, a social issue. She is coming on behalf of her daughter, and in the ancient world, this was a need beneath the dignity of any true rabbi. But remember, Jesus is one that always brings dignity back. Um, we find dignity in him. And then, of course, there is this cleanliness issue. When you put all these facts together... She was, this daughter was possessed with an unclean spirit. And so there's this, this reminder, we just came out of a passage where Jesus is interacting with Pharisees that were all concerned about what? People being unclean. 
But here is Jesus now being approached by a woman who has these various obstacles. But I want you to notice what happens next. See, there's everything about her that's shouting in this context that she is not a Jew. But even with those obstacles, she is not too far from grace. Notice how she approaches Jesus. She heard that he was in town, and so there is hope. She came, which means that hope spilled out into action. She fell down, and in her desperation, she was not too proud to humble herself before this well-known master. And then she begged And this begging is something that was happening repeatedly. She's like pleading and begging and repeating and and begging and, and pleading. She's just going on and on and on about, please help. She wasn't willing to take no for an answer. There was some drive in her that was going on here that she was not willing to take no for an answer. She was persistent. And so of all the people who approached Jesus in the gospel of Mark, this woman had the most against her. From a Jewish perspective, she had to overcome these obstacles. Now, I'm sure sure that Levi, the tax collector, who is viewed by society as raising his eyebrows here, like, wow, this is, all right, she's a, you know, she's definitely one who's uh, making the most of the situation, but She's coming, and she's bold, and she has gall. Now, even with this thoroughly deficient resume, she does not apologize or even cower before this rabbi. She comes boldly, respectfully, humbly, and persistently, hoping and begging for his help. Now, the point here is this. Mark is laying all this out to show the incredible desperation of this woman. She has a child who has a need that she can do nothing about, and and she is willing to come in such a way that demonstrates to this master her, her, her deepest humility, her deepest desire for his help. Now, I just want to ask you, and this is worth me considering the question too. When, when we're burdened down with the cares that consume us, how do we approach Jesus? Do we approach Jesus? Do you start to fight in your mind with all the obstacles that, that, that come up or that Satan brings into your thought process that, that, that just kind of hinder you from actually pursuing Christ? You know, well, I, I, I'm just going to have to handle this on my own. Why? Because I've been too sinful. I'm ashamed at what I've done. I'm unworthy. I'm a nobody. Why would would he want to do anything for me? And friends, you know, I know that that in in this room, you know, most of us here are identifying ourselves as followers of Christ. But sometimes we can not believe what God has said, even though he has forgiven us. And shame can still stay with us. And and these obstacles can still be barriers to, to this freedom that we should have with him. The example of this woman 
should put some fire in us to believe that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Listen, God recognizes that we are sinful creatures. He is not saying that we have to arrive at this level of goodness because we can't. I mean, even this morning as, uh, as Chris was, was beginning, he was talking about, you know, we're not great. <laughs> we don't have it all together. And that's true. When God looks down at us, he's not looking at us independently of looking at his son because it's his righteousness that is placed on us. It's not our goodness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so, yes, there are going to be things that we struggle with. Yes, there are going to be these these obstacles that that creep up and, and put us in a place where we're maybe not willing to follow through. But guess what? Jesus wants us to press through knowing who he is. Now notice her interaction with Jesus. She keeps begging Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. She keeps... um, It says she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And when Jesus finally speaks, what comes out of his mouth on the surface seems extremely insensitive and insulting. Look at verse 27. And just, again, pick up the context. She's, she's, look at the way she's coming, and she's on her knees, and she's begging. When Jesus finally breaks the silence, this is what he says. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What? Oh, oh, what? What is Jesus saying here? I mean, is he just being unkind? Is he, is he being rude here? It does seem rather harsh at, at face value. Several years ago, a feminist scholar wrote an essay giving a scathing critique of Jesus' response to the Syrophoenician woman, saying that his insensitivity and harshness were, to, were so severe on this occasion that he so demeaned this woman in a typical chauvinistic fashion, that he, tra- uh, he transgressed all boundaries of courtesy and crossed the line even into slander. And this text, she charged, was exhibit A, that Jesus was not sinless because he wronged this innocent woman by calling her a dog. Now, it is true that in that time frame, Jews would refer to Gentiles as dogs. So let's not, let's not forget that was a reality. It's a sad reality, but it's a reality. And what they are meaning by that word dog are these wild animals that run around in packs and feed off of whatever they can find. Now, living here in the States, we really don't run into that too much. You might see a dog kind of off by itself because it got out of its, you know, its backyard or got off the leash or something like that. But come with me to Bolivia um, sometimes you'll be walking around a corner and there's a pack of like 10 to 15 dogs. And at first you're like, ah, what's going to happen here? But actually they're so used to seeing people, they just, they just all run together and they find one trash can, trash bag after another, and they're all doing this thing. They actually don't bother you too much. But that's, what, that's how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. Now, that may be true, but that is not what is going on in this text. There's actually something very sweet and tender that is happening in this text. You see, in our country, um, 
we, we treat dogs more like our family, don't we? And that's really the, the, the kind of way in which Jesus was describing this. Because notice what it says here. I just want you to pick up on this. He says, let the children be fed, what? First. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. What Jesus is saying here is that there's this, there's this plan, there's this divine plan of earthly ministry that is to go to the children first where the bread of life would be given and only then to the Gentiles. The children would eat first and then the little household pets, puppies, that's the idea of this word. Can eat. And of course, what Jesus is talking about is this that during this gospel time, his primary focus is on Israel. It is at Pentecost when officially ministry goes out to the Gentiles. So he's speaking here of an order of the the divine plan of his coming and, and the working out of that gospel ministry. And 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 if you read on here, notice how she answers full of faith. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. See, there's nothing in this woman's response that gives us any idea that she understood what Jesus said to be insensitive at all. She's not saying, how dare you compare me to a dog? No, instead she says, in essence, the following, yes, Lord, I understand I have no prior claim to your mercy or grace. I am not one of your children. In other words, I'm not a Jew. I have no right to sit at the table and feast on the food that you set before your children. I understand my place, but I am satisfied to eat the crumbs from the table that fall on the floor. Please heal my daughter. I know we don't belong, and I know that I have no right to ask for your help. I just want a crumb of your mercy and your grace. Now, friends, there's something beautiful about that picture. There's something amazing about the insight and understanding of this woman who's being put off, you might say, but at the same time, she understands that she can have grace because all is required is a crumb She's satisfied with that. Friends, this is ultimate humility that recognizes God's grace. The Son of God might come with the bread of life to the children of Israel, but she is willing simply to eat the crumbs, the leftovers of God's grace. Now, can you see the contrast between this woman and the Pharisees? She's not interested in fighting for her rights or or trying to prove herself to God. No, she is one who knows that she's an unworthy servant, pleading for grace. Now, you might be a little offended at this, but the reality is we sing songs that include expressions like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Look up the word wretch in the dictionary, okay? How about this one? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a what? Worm as I. 
You're a worm. I don't know if you've ever experienced someone coming up to you and calling you a worm, but that's, Scripture does describe us as that. The point is this, that we are so very far away from being anything good. But it is through this wretch and worm mentality this, that we recognize the beauty of God's grace. We do not deserve it. And yet he is showering it on us. So she understood the condition of her, of, uh, uh, her own condition and her place, but she also understood God's grace and that it overflows. And that overflow would be enough to satisfy. So in verse 29 she says, for this statement, or Jesus says, for this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Matthew's account actually adds a little bit more meat to it and says, O woman, great is your faith. Mega is your faith. So Jesus has not found this kind of faith among the Pharisees or the religious leaders in Israel. But here in this pagan place, here's this woman who comes in faith, persisting, and, and, and coming to this, this rabbi, this healer, just asking for some crumbs. And what's the resolve? Well, the resolve there is found in verse 30. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gun. Now get this, all Jesus had to do to have that little girl free from this demon was to speak the word. Go home. The demon has left your daughter. Now, we need to remind ourselves something. Probably all of us in this room are Gentiles. We're dogs who have had the wonderful privilege of being brought into the family of God. So, I think it's helpful for us to recognize, just kind of reflecting on this, number one, that Jesus cares for the nations. And so should we. Secondly, Jesus still cares for the people of Israel, and so should we. But Jesus also cares for individuals, and so should we. And as we think about those realities we need to understand that there is no longer really any distinction between Jew and Gentile because we are one in Christ. Now let's quickly move now to this man, the deaf mute. That might be a little bit stronger statement of the reality, but look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, the Sea of Galilee, and the region of Decapolis. So all this long journey now to get to Decapolis. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. So it wasn't so much that he was mute, but, but his speech was just hindered in some way. Now, if you know people who are deaf, oftentimes they have difficulty actually sounding normal, right? Because they can't hear. So there may be a connection there. Um, but certainly, um, this, this, this man, you know, could not hear, and had difficulty speaking. But friends, all of this takes us back to the book of Isaiah. 
Now, so how does it take us back to the book of Isaiah? Turn, if you would, please, to Isaiah chapter 34. There, there's a connection here that, that what's happening, actually, in, in, in the greater context of Mark here, 6, 7, 8, even into 9, we're, we're going to see what is was ultimately said and being fulfilled um, from Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 in particular. So Isaiah chapter 34, and, and beginning at verse 8, and just understand that we have, a, we have a chapter here that basically is a chapter that is an oracle of doom and gloom for Israel and her neighbors. All right? And in chapter 35, we find something else that takes place. But let's just take a moment to look at chapter 34. And remember that that what happens with Isaiah as he's preparing the people for God's judgment because it's coming. He says, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, uh, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Pick it up at verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur, and her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Uh, its smoke shall go up forever. For From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now, what's interesting here is we have this, this chapter of judgment, and there's more of it in Isaiah, but we have this chapter of judgment. And oftentimes what we find in these prophecies is that when God gives judgment, he also then gives a word of future hope. Because the purpose of God's judgment was always to bring his people, his covenant people, back to him. So when we move from 34, which is all about judgment, we move to 35, and I want you to notice what we have there in chapter 35. And in particular, we'll pick it up at verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strength Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now friends, there's, there's an allusion in our text today back to this passage in Isaiah. There's this idea that these are pictures of spiritual uh, renewal or spiritual birth or just the way that God deals with his people. We, we see the healings in the Gospels. Hear this. Not all of the healings mean that the people have actually come to faith. They're a demonstration of who Jesus is. They're a demonstration of his power. Unless he actually identifies someone who is exercising faith. But did you get Verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf 
unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. So hold on to that thought, and let's press on in this text. Now let's notice the interaction that Jesus has with this particular man. Now remember, this man is a Gentile, and he would be considered unclean by Jewish standards. But that doesn't hold Jesus back from reaching out uh, to this man. And what, what Jesus does next is a little bit unorthodox. For some of you, it might even be some you know, kind of an, an you factor, right? Um, if you actually look at what's going on, look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, again, well, he wants to give him the focus. He doesn't want this man to be distracted. He wants to have this full attention here. He put his fingers into his ears. That's the first you factor, right? And after spitting, touched his tongue. And he could just imagine Jesus pulling this, this man aside and, and looking into his eyes. And the crowd looking for maybe from a distance as to what's going on. And gently he puts his fingers in this man's ears. And then with some spittle on his fingers, he touches the man's tongue. Now why did Jesus do that? There's lots of different thoughts that are out there. Some actually believe that um, Jesus was following the custom of the day that actually believed that spittle from a healer had great power. But we know that's not how Jesus worked. I want, you to, I want you to see something. Jesus is condescending to this man in such a way that he is communicating by his touch what he is going to do. Remember, this person is deaf. Now, he might be able to read lips, but he, he's deaf. He can't, he can't hear it. So, so touch was important. And, and he touches his ears. He touches his mouth. And he's, he's, by doing that, he's saying, I am going to heal you in these particular areas. This is how I'm going to function. He's wanting this, this man to know that something's about to happen and that he is the one who is going to be doing this. And then we read verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha. That is, be opened. So he, he looked, first of all. He looked up to heaven. Here's a picture of Jesus' continual communion with the Godhead. Even in the midst of this, he is turning to the Father. And then it says he sighed. Again, it's an issue of interpretation here, but I, would, I, I like to kind of think that the sighing is because of the condition of man. And Jesus is having compassion here on the plight of this man's condition. And then he spoke. It wasn't the fingers that healed. It wasn't the touching of the mouth that healed. It's when Jesus speaks, be opened, that this man's ears are opened up and his tongue is loose. Look at verse 35. Here's the resolve. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Literally, the, the chain of his tongue was broken. The bondage of the fetters that he had on his tongue, on his ailment, had been loosed. And he spoke plainly. In other words, he spoke correctly. He was restored fully, completely. Now, let me again remind you of Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. 
And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So in these two encounters, we see the following. We see a, a, a woman who comes in her encounter with Jesus, and it is God's grace that is on display. And we see that the grace is not just for the Jew, it's for all even those who do not consider themselves to be much. With the man, we see that the fruit of faith in Christ is the breaking of the chains of bondage that enslave us. And the the end result of all that is that when these chains are gone, these, these fetters are gone, these snares are gone, when they're removed by Christ, there is joy. Notice verse 36. When Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Although Jesus commanded them to be quiet and to be silent and not to tell anyone, which is interesting because the last time he was in Decapolis, you remember who he interacted with? The demoniac? And what does he tell them? Go tell them what happened, right? So here, it's a little bit different, but these people are so full of what they have seen that they cannot be uh, silenced. They they are, it says, utterly astonished. It's one thing to be astonished. It's another thing to be utterly astonished. Then we went over this last week, right? It's one thing to, you know, eat your turkey and all that kind of stuff and be full, and it's another thing to be utterly full, right? This is is full-blown astonishment. And so this is one of those occasions in Mark's gospel where there is a testimony from the people because of their amazement, because of their astonishment. Notice what they say. He has done all things well. Now, that's not the usual testimony you hear. (laughs) You see, Jesus, in his interaction with us, is always doing things well. Now, specifically, it's referring to the man, but I think you could also say that's referring to um, the woman also. Now, I want to I take what we've, what we've mined for a while here and just kind of narrow it down to some, some final thoughts that I think flow out of this text. And there's a reason why I brought these two together, because I think, I think you have a, a picture of a, of a man and a woman. You have two different kinds of, of healings, and restoration that takes place. But there's some things that flow out of this that I think are important for us to understand. First of all, as we, as we continue here, I think it's important to recognize that Jesus welcomes those who are despised by the world. Get this. Gender doesn't change the gospel. Ethnicity doesn't change the gospel. Religion doesn't change the gospel. What I mean by by all this is it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're from one ethnicity or another. The gospel is still the same for you. Right? It doesn't matter what religion you've grown up with. It's still the same gospel that you need. Social status doesn't change the gospel. Right? A disability you may have doesn't change the gospel. 
the fact that you are demon-possessed doesn't change the gospel. You see, in all of these cases, it is the same gospel that changes the hearts of men. So what is it that we do when we take the gospel to other peoples? Well, we take the same gospel. We take it into other contexts. But notice Galatians chapter 3. Um, this came to mind this morning as I was, we were singing a song, and so I jotted it down because I think it's helpful because it goes along with this just to reinforce it. But Galatians chapter 3, Paul just makes, wants to make sure that we understand this unity that we have in him. And look, if you would, please, at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, there's a unity factor there, but there's also a means by which the gospel penetrates all of those people. There's not a different gospel for different kinds of people. There's one gospel, and that gospel is sufficient for a Jew, for a stiff-necked, hypocritical Jew. And the same gospel is what is needed for a woman who is a Syrophoenician Gentile who in one sense has no business coming before Jesus Christ at all. It's the same gospel. Secondly, we build on this. The church unites all who believe into one man, the church. Now I would invite you to, to, to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I have a friend from, from college. His name is... Uh, Tanas Kuri, and he grew up in Bethlehem, Israel. And uh, he works for a missions organization that has the idea of reconciling um, those who are within the body of Christ, but really are from a, from a more of a Jewish Zionist perspective, from a, might want to say, a Palestinian Christian perspective, because there's still tensions that are there. And there's this, there's this conference that takes place every couple of years, it's probably in its happened three times. It's called Christ at the Checkpoint. It takes place in Bethlehem. And it's kind of a, um, it, it, let's put it this way, it's, it's not a pure conference. You have, you have people from different, I want to say, um, religious perspectives that are attending this conference. But it's interesting to me how the Zionist Jews, those, those, those are the ones that, 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 that actually believe that, that there is a unique place for a Jewish culture, church, and this is the pure culture, and their, their view against those who are, um, I would say, Gentile believers. There's this tension that is there. And yet, you know, I'm sitting down, and, you know, I'm actually on Skype or something like that, talking with, with Tanas, and I'm like, do they not read Ephesians chapter 2? And in particular, right now, we're going to read verses 11 through 22, and I just want you to, to see what Paul is saying here. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, 
Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles were far off, right? They were separated. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see what's going on here? There's Jew, there's Gentile, and there's Christ, and there's his blood. And when we embrace Christ as our Savior, we take two, and it becomes one. So the distinction should not be Jew and Gentile anymore for the church. It should be the church. We're not Gentile believers or Jewish believers. We are believers. And the the moment we begin to drift away from that unity is the moment that we begin to have difficulty and struggles. And that could be true even in our context, guys. I'm so thankful for Gateway. We didn't plan the diversity that we have in our church. We didn't sit down and say, and I say this seriously, we didn't sit down and say, well, let's see, we want one elder to be white, one elder to be African-American, one to be Hispanic, and one to be Filipino. So we got all that. You know, we didn't, we didn't sit down and say, we got to get our demographics right. God just created it that way. And you guys are here, and you're, you're from all different places. And there's something wonderful and beautiful about that. But the moment we start saying, well, there's Anglo-Christians, and there's African-American Christians, and we go down that path, we're starting now to begin to create division that doesn't need to be there because what unites us is not our ethnicity. We actually really enjoy that. But what unites us is Christ. And we must remember that that is, that is the, the, the thing, that is the reality. It is this peace that comes through the cross that unites us together as a church. This also speaks to um, this, this whole concept of, of creeds. Um, you see, unity is not, is not just conforming to peripheral things. It's, it's conforming to those things which are central. And I, I just remember years ago being in a church where um, you know, I heard the pastor say, you know, I only have one creed, and it's two words. And what are the two words? Anyone know? Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm going to believe that. All right, well, can you describe this Jesus Christ? You say, well, where are you going with this, Pastor It's not sufficient to say Jesus Christ is my creed. You have, to be, you have to actually identify and explain who this Christ is that you're identifying with. Because other religions would identify Jesus Christ too. And so there's a need then to have creeds that, that spell out who is this Christ. Is he the son of God? Is he equal with God? But at the same time, you don't want a creed that is so long 
that it's like, man, I, you know, it's this book here. I've got to read through it all and figure it out. But there, there needs to be a simplicity as well as a, a fullness to make sure things are explained. But the essentials are what unite us. Third thing, the gospel speaks to people in the language they need. See, Pastor Rod, you're getting weird on us now. No, I think think what we have in this text is we, we find Jesus now interacting with, speaking with two different individuals in two different ways. With the woman, his interaction was much more a reasoning with her. With the man, his interaction was much more an interaction of touch. Now the question is, which is the right one? And the answer is both. You see, the gospel goes out to different people in different ways. The issue is we don't water down the gospel. Let me kind of explain it this way. The gospel confronts the wicked. There are times when the wicked need to be confronted. And that is the right way of sharing the gospel. But the gospel also comforts the hurting. It challenges the thinker. It reaches down to the simple. It humbles the proud. It mends the broken. It liberates the captive. In other words, depending on who you are interacting with is going to determine how you actually bring the gospel to them. You're going to speak to a child differently with the gospel than you're going to speak to a professor in a university. But it's the same gospel. But it's communicated in a different way based on the needs, the culture, the circumstance of those people. Now, a passage that has been taken out of context a lot is when the Apostle Paul says, I've become all things to all men. It's, you know, it's kind of used as an excuse like, well, now I'm going to look like the world and be like the world because I want to reach the world. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you're pursuing sin and, and through that sin, try, it, that, that doesn't work. What Paul means by that expression, be all things to all men, is when I come into a place where there's a different kind of a culture, I'm going to adjust what might be my preference to that culture because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm accepted in that culture culturally so that I have a platform to speak the gospel. It is not a freedom then to abandon biblical truth. It is actually a creating of a platform so that biblical truth can go forward. And so, friends, there's this this need to understand that the the gospel speaks to people in the language that they need. And as I was thinking about this, you know, I I was thinking about about little Walter. (laughs) Here's a special needs child. How do you share the gospel with a, a little special needs child? You can. And we don't know to what degree he's going to receive it. But I'm probably not going to speak to him like I am a professor. I'm probably not going to use logic. There's probably a very simple gospel that he may comprehend. We don't know. But friends, the, the, there's a need for us to have the same gospel, but to learn maybe how to adjust the actual sharing of that gospel based on the people to whom we are going to be speaking. And that's what Jesus models for us here. And then finally, it's important for us to realize that the gospel truly changes lives. 
I don't think this woman or this daughter or this man who are affected by Jesus ever forgot what Jesus did for them. There's a sense in which we need to be reminded that it is the gospel that truly changes lives. There's a radical change that happens in us because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now see, Jesus wants us to see in this passage that he does all things well. He handles the gospel carefully, purposefully, and, and, and with, with power in such a way that he accomplishes the things that he's setting out to do. I want to finish today and kind of transition into our time around the Lord's table by, by reading a song that just reinforces what we have looked at in this passage. O oh, four thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. I'm missing a stanza there where it talks about he makes the, the dumb to speak and to sing for joy. And friends, this is, this is what Jesus does. He takes us in our need. He radically changes us. And hear this. If you're a child of God today, the reason you sing is because you were once spiritually a mute. And Jesus has released you from the bondage of sin so that you can sing in such a way to give him praise for what he has done in changing your life. Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, as I've mentioned. I want to invite you to come, but as you do, the opportunity that you have as you hold the, the elements in your hand and as we wait to celebrate it together is to reflect on your own conversion to think about what Jesus did in, in pursuing you, to get you to the place where you came and bowed the knee before him and said, you are my Lord, you are my master, you are everything. And to be reminded of how he has been the one who has been the source of change in your life. Not you, but he is the one who has brought radical change and continues to work in your heart. Lord, help us today to consider the implications, Lord, of these two examples, to see Christ at work in us. When we have burdens, when we're struggling, or we have uh, uh, obstacles that hinder us from even coming, may we learn from this text, Lord, not to neglect coming to you, but to trust you, to come by faith, to come boldly, and Lord, also to understand that you speak to us in ways that, that you understand what we are going through. And Lord, we just ask now for your strength and your wisdom and your grace that as we take these elements, that you would give us a, a, a refreshment through them 
a reminder of what you have done for us on the cross and a reminder of what we are now because of you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your grace and your goodness and for the wonderful freedom we have to sing for joy because of you. We ask this now in your name.